Has Vesna forgiven Grosnick yet? Absolutely not. Grosnick has only apologized twice. I doubt he'll be forgiven for another two years. Well, at least he has his other wives. Not wives. Wife. Kessel moved to Tears of Prime to be with her third husband. Which one was her third husband? Oh, was that Claiborne? Boga. Claiborne was for Lisa's husband. Her first, I think. <laughs> for Lisa. Oh, my, my. <laughs> I, uh, thought about asking for Lisa to be my second wife. <laughs> Turned out she already had three husbands. <laughs> politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and student of humanoid psychology. No, no, no. no. I'm Elizabeth, your resident Trek nerd and student of... Wait a minute. Fine. I'll go by my middle name. Thank you. (laughs) I was confused there. Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are whoever we are, and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I tackle the topic of non-monogamy in Star Trek. Uh, I struggled a little bit coming up with episodes for this topic, as it isn't nearly as directly portrayed in the show as, say, Nazis or drug use. Uh, We aren't discussing casual sex. That's something we addressed in our Ryza episode, episode 9, check it out, and we'll come back to again someday. But specifically, for this episode, we're talking about non-monogamy within established relationships. We're starting out with our Imzadis again, looking at the sixth season episode of TNG called Second Chances, which aired in 1993, was written by Renee Echeverria and Mike Medlock, and directed by LeVar Burton. The Enterprise has arrived at Nervala 4 to retrieve some long-abandoned research after an accident eight years prior. They recover more than they bargain for as they discover a disheveled, gold-shirted, but otherwise genuine copy of Will Riker on the surface. You see, there's a tech-tech field around the planet which causes all sorts of problems, but eight years ago it split the transporter beam through which our real Riker escaped, but it left behind an exact duplicate, exact in every way. Apparently, there was a massive energy surge in the distortion field around the planet just at the moment you tried to beam out. The transporter chief tried to compensate by initiating a second containment beam. Hmm. Commander Riker's pattern maintained its integrity with just the one containment beam. He made it back to the ship just fine. What happened to the second beam? It was reflected back to the surface. And another William Riker materialized there. Which of them is real? Well, that's the thing. Both. Up until that moment, you were the same person. But of course, as you and Lieutenant Riker have lived very different lives for the past eight years, you are now very different people. What this offers each man is a chance to see the last eight years through fresh eyes. Gold Shirt Will, whom we will go ahead and call Tom Riker, is still fully in love with Troy and determined to win her back. He's also amazed that Will turned down his own command and reconciled with their father Kyle in The Icarus Factor. See episode 14 of this podcast for more. Will Riker is uncomfortable to see a version of himself which has retained many of the qualities of his younger days. If you think I'm coming down on you because the captain overruled me, think again. I happen to disagree with his decision, but he is my commanding officer and I follow his orders. Just so there's no confusion, 
I am your commanding officer, and I expect you to do the same. For her part, Troy finds herself resuming her relationship with Tom, despite some understandable reservations. Thomas wants her to marry him and join him on a new assignment, much like he had promised her eight years ago. Will wants her to be careful, since he has a track record of breaking her heart. It's complicated. In the end, the two Rikers manage to work together to complete the research recovery. Troy decides to stay in the Enterprise, returning to the status quo for the moment, while Thomas heads off to join the Maquis and die alone in a Cardassian labor camp. Happy ending. Wait, what about the Cardassian labor camp? What? Do you remember the DS9 episode, Defiant, <clears throat> where Thomas Riker comes back? Third season? No. I need to watch it. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, they brought Thomas Riker back for a Maquis episode on DS9. And in the end, he ends up, uh, spoiler, he ends up uh, trading in his freedom for his other Maquis people and goes to our Cardassian labor camp. And Kira promises to rescue him, but she never does. So presumably he just died there. We'll get you out of there, Tom. I promise you that. (laughs) Or or he got drafted into Section 31 like Boimler does in Lower Decks. Uh Also, spoiler. Well, there we go. Well, Jonathan Frake definitely doesn't do enough Star Trek these days. So maybe they'll bring him back for the Section 31 show. (laughs) Awesome. All right. So uh, I chose Second Chances as the episode to look at Troy and Riker's alleged non-monogamy, specifically because it um, gives Troy the chance to look at these sort of two divergent paths, because uh, Thomas is the version of Will that, you know, he wants to pick up where they left off and get married and have this very kind of traditional... After I've served for six months, I'm eligible to bring family aboard we got married uh whereas what we've seen at this point end of season six six years at least of the two of them troy and Riker, having this implied kind of open relationship they definitely have dated other people and been serious about other people but there's no doubt that they have at least been having sort of a casual relationship she could have been yours will i'm here and i'm going to take her too if you can bring happiness into deanna's life Nothing would please me more. Deanna is just the woman to bring some meaning to your sorry existence, if you're smart enough to take it. And there's no doubt that they still have a lot of love for each other. I've met someone, someone who's becoming important to me. I don't know, I thought I should tell you. I'm glad you did. Nothing will change between us, will it? Of course it will. All relationships are constantly changing. You're a part of my life, and I'm a part of yours. That much will always be true. So that's kind of what we see. It, it flew under the radar, I think, for a lot of people in the 90s, but it's it's really kind of amazing <laughs> that we see this on TV. Yeah, it's kind of implied that Troy and Riker have this non-monogamous relationship like throughout the entire series. It's not just in one episode. Yeah, in addition to you know Thomas being the version of... Deanna and Riker that like would have been the more quote unquote traditional monogamous kind of like path they could have gone down. I also see like Will and Will and Thomas as being like they're two different partners, you know. Everybody has a type. Sometimes the people that non-monogamous people end up with 
are similar. You're like, mm. I can see why you're attracted to these people. There's a theme. <laughs> um, and, and like the kind of almost inherent jealousy that can go on in that of just like, wait, you're also attracted to this person who's really similar to me. And I don't like that for some reason. Why? We've both had relationships with other people. This is different. I didn't know how you'd feel about it. Flattered, sort of. It's a weird feeling. You don't quite know what yeah. where to put your ego <laughs> in those kinds of situations. Yeah. They're very antagonistic for most of the episode. And I love the scene where they're both playing poker together. And one, I love how uncomfortable Data and Worf are. <laughs> I am not easy to get along with. But Commander Riker and Lieutenant Riker are. Yet they seem to have trouble getting along with each other. I have found that humans value their uniqueness. That sense that they are different from everyone else. The existence of a double would preclude that feeling. Well, perhaps it is more a matter of seeing something in your double. Something you do not like in yourself. But then, you know, it's also like, how do you argue with yourself? How do yeah. you argue with different versions of yourself? How do you... Like, the conversation they're having is actually really exquisite and complex. And they're talking about so many different levels of experience. The differences between how their lives diverged. I've practiced in the mirror too long to be fooled by that face. You're bluffing. Here's your hundred. And 20 more. I thought if one thing were clear by now, said you and I play things a little differently. I thought you were willing to settle for a second, Commander. I've never settled for anything in my life. I know what I want, I know what I've got, and you'd be lucky to do so well, Lieutenant. The differences in how the same person can want different things and be at odds with themselves, which is actually externalized like mm. in this episode. And then at the end, when Will saves Thomas from falling down into the cavern and like how that really just changes like their whole dynamic. It's, it's, it's really poetic and metaphorical in like a really complex way that was really fun for me to like rewatch re like on second viewing or however many times I've watched this episode with this podcast and theme in mind, rewatching this episode. It was fascinating. Yeah. And, and Trek has before this and after this dealt more than once with um, like the doppelganger thing and yeah. and what that can mean. Um, what's unique about this instance is because of where it is in the show and the particular backstory with who Thomas is and that they are really the same person, um, but with different experiences, uh, you know, that scene in the cave could have gone down where actually Will died, right? And so our Commander Riker yeah. loses his life and we're left with Thomas. So, they, you know, in the 90s, the cast is the same, but suddenly you have like a brand new character to move into the mix. Oh. It could have been really interesting. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied with what we saw, like when we looked at Nepenthia a, a couple weeks ago with where Troy and Riker end up and their relationship. But it, it, it was an interesting possibility, even for TV at the time, that this particular situation afforded them that. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I agree with what you say. There's that externalized sort of internal monologue. Uh, and what that, how that plays into this concept of their particular version of non-monogamy, his and Troy's, is good because both men are jealous, right? Like, Will yeah. is jealous of Tom because he gets to fully um, sort of throw himself at Deanna and he's 
going like he's going to take the first career opportunity that comes along like he's he's got all those sort of qualities of his younger self we saw that a little bit in the best of both worlds with shelby do you remember that that other officer that came in she takes the initiative a little too easily sometimes with risks and like a young lieutenant commander i recruited as a first officer well what the hell are you still doing here all you know how to do is play it safe when it comes to this ship and this crew, you're damned right I play it safe. Deanna, I pushed myself hard to get this far. I, I sacrificed a lot. The captain says Shelby reminds him of the way that I used to be. And he's right. I look at her and I wonder what happened to those things in me. I like those things about me. I've lost something. I don't think you've lost a thing. And I think you've gained more than you realize. You're happy here. Happier than I've ever known you to be. They chafe against each other because she reminds Will of his younger self. It's it's a thing with with Will, and um, so he's jealous of that. Of course, Thomas is jealous of the fact that Will has all the, the a lot of the things. Well, take it. You always had the better hand in everything. He's in a comfortable position in his life. He has respect and. A, a, a certain modicum of sort of control over what's going on with him that, that Thomas lacks. Um, and that's a conversation we have with ourselves when we're making choices about, well, how many partners might I want? <laughs> or it's, it's a trade all the time. It's almost like each man sees what the other has that they don't. And they're envious of that. They're jealous of that. And it's almost like, well, if only I'd had the career opportunities and not been stuck on a planet for eight years, suddenly all my problems would be gone. Is like the like romanticized version of how Thomas's views Will. And Will is like, oh, if only I had not limited myself by the choices I have made in the past eight years. And what if I could start over and go in a different direction and suddenly all, all my problems would be solved? And neither one is actually right. It's just a different set of problems. Yeah. You know, it's a different set of just like choices and circumstances and one's, there are pros and cons to both. But, you know, when, when you see what someone else has that you don't have and what you want, it's really easy just to be like, if only I had that, I'd be happy. You know, like that's the, you know, capitalist consumerist <laughs> message that we've been fed for our whole lives. So it's really easy to believe it, you know? Yeah. There's there's certainly this, the the capitalist bent, but it's also just sort of human nature that we we can't help but wonder like, well, what if, what if, what if, and what that's if, yeah. that's one of the cool things about this episode. Um, but the other thing that I appreciate uh, about what what it sort of brings into focus about Troy and Riker, our our Riker, is the fact that there's no diminishing of the love they have for each other or the like care that they have or the commitment you might say to each other um despite the fact that they clearly aren't in a monogamous relationship at this point it, it will is 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 upset for himself for his own ego with the possibility that he's going to lose Deanna to his other self. <laughs> um, yeah. But he's also primarily concerned with her well-being. And when he, and he tells her, Do me a favor. Be careful. If he had gotten off the planet instead of me, don't you think he would have made the same choices that I made? 
I just don't want you to be hurt again. It, it is both him looking out for his own self and his own needs, but it's also a genuine, like, you know, he, he, he cares for her the way any romantic partner would. There's a lot of love and respect between them. You know, like Deanna even goes to Will to like talk about this. If you want to be with him, you don't have to ask my permission. The look in your eyes, I recognize it. You used to have it for me. One of the special things that's showcased here about a possibility within a uh, non-monogamous relationship is the fact that because Troy and Riker have this history and this intimate understanding of each other, uh, well, particularly um, Will's understanding of Deanna, is that they can talk about her having this connection with this other person mm -hmm. in a way that you couldn't really do with like a friend, even a close friend. Like there is that possibility of conversation and understanding where you're, you're literally talking about yeah. a relation, a magic relationship with, with someone else. Um, and that's really special. That kind of like, yeah, I know exactly what you're like, not only as a person, but like as a lover and I can offer you some yeah, advice. It's, it, it's its own kind of intimacy, you know, but like there's there's a lack of possessiveness about it, which is refreshing to see. And also just an openness of like, I love you and I want you to be happy, you know, right. and I'm worried about you. And all of these things can be true. And I think it's really interesting that Will cautions Deanna about like, you know, Thomas is me, you know, like he what makes you think he wouldn't make the same decision? He's like, it's me. I know what I would have done. And I. I hurt you and I feel bad about that. And I don't want to see you hurt again. I think that's really sweet. And Thomas does the exact same thing. You know, he goes to the other ship. He does exactly what the, what Will did. And Deanna is heartbroken yeah. about that. And, and I think that's just one of the like ironies of relationships is like hoping for things to be different, you know, between even if it's with the same person or a different person of like, maybe this time it'll be different and wanting that possibility for people to grow and change and for not to repeat the same problems. And also for the realistic, like, okay, this is who you are. Like how, you know, how do you balance those two things, which are kind of at odds with each other and happening all the time? Jump forward to Voyager's third season for our first look at Kess. Warlord was written by Lisa Klink, directed by David Livingston, and aired in 1996. The Voyager rescues a trio of aliens from a damaged vessel. The Doctor does his best, but one man, Tyrion, dies in Kess's presence. Janeway agrees to ferry the remaining pair back to their home despite a brewing civil war amongst rival ruling factions, of which Tyrion was one. Meanwhile, Kess and Neelix are having relationship troubles. Finally... Neelix insists on inserting himself in every aspect of Kess's life, including her makeshift ambassadorial role with the surviving aliens. And for once, Kess pushes back. You certainly seem to have hit it off with our guests. You've been nearly inseparable since they got here. No one really needs a friend right now. I want to be there for her. So I hope you understand that I'll be busy with her and Aiden for the next few days. We can keep them busy together. This is typical of you, Neelix. It bothers you that I'm making friends of my own. You always have to involve yourself somehow. I'd hoped that you would want to be with me, at least some of the time. It's not a duty or an obligation. Well, sometimes it feels that way. It might be a good idea 
for both of us to spend some time apart. Spoiler, the break will be permanent. When Voyager arrives at the alien's home, Kess surprises everyone by killing the alien representative and a crewman and stealing a shuttle along with the alien duo. We learn that Kess has been possessed by Tyran, a pattern he's kept for centuries, it seems. In Kess's body, complete with practice access to her Ocampa force powers, Tyran proceeds to assume power, murdering his enemies, well, most of them. At one point, he proposes a polygamous marriage with a member of the opposing political faction. Would you rather be a martyr to your brother's cause or rule by my side? Ah, tell me you still love me. You know I love you. You have both been essential to my success, and I want you to be close friends. I want us all to be very, very close. We see that within her shared mind, Kess and Tyrion are having a battle of wills. Based on telepathically transmitted advice from Tuvok, Kess begins to adopt her captor's methods in fighting off this control. I'm fighting you with every bit of strength I have, and it's wearing you down. You're becoming more unstable every day. The headaches alone are almost more than you can stand. I haven't existed for two centuries to be brought down by a child. You're already deteriorating and it's only going to get worse. I'll find every little crack in your defenses. You'll feel yourself crumbling from within, your sanity slipping away. I won't stop until you're broken and helpless. There's nowhere you can go to get away from me. I'll be relentless and merciless, just like you. Eventually, the crew are able to rescue Kess after purging Tyrion from her body. She confesses to Tuvok that her actions and experiences with Tyrion in her head have changed her perspective on everything, including her relationships. So Kess and Neelix really break up after this episode? Because I, I saw in the episode they kind of take a break, but I thought that was Tyrion. Right. But that actually continues? like. Yeah, and you can chalk this up to the sort of stochastic storytelling on Voyager. Um, I'm often critical of DS9, but they were way better at this than, than uh, the Voyager writers, where you have to do a lot of uh, work um, in your head to sort of fit things together. But they do fit together. So the next time we see uh, any mention of the Kess and Neelix relationships is a few episodes later in this season in an episode called Darkling. I think I'm detecting a reaction to your recent breakup with Mr. Neelix. The Mahatma would recommend a cold bath. Simplistic. But no doubt effective. But between oh. this episode and that one, we don't see them together. So what we have to do in our heads is say, okay, they took this break. She has this conversation with Tuvok at the end where she's like, everything's changed. And then the next time it, the relationship is referenced, they have fully split. So obviously that's what happened, is that there's this breakup that then she decides after Tyrion's out of her body, no, I'm, I need this. And do you think that was because of the experiences she had as Tyrion? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you think about it. Uh, so Tyrion has access to Kess's uh, memories and her, obviously, to, to impersonating her. Kess is about two, two, year and a half, two and a half years old at this yeah. point. And Tyrion is like, what, 200 years old or something like yeah. that. So his experiences, life experiences are obviously so much more vast than hers. And she takes a look at this situation with Neelix and she's like, fuck this. <laughs> like, this is awful. And what Kess says to Neelix or, you know, Tyrion through Kess says to Neelix is like, I never realized a relationship could be any different. I've never been with anyone but you. Then this really possessive, uh, kind of 
awkward grooming thing that has been between the two of them. Um, and to me, that's... So the reason I chose this episode was specifically because of the mention of Tyrion to his wife about them doing this polygamous marriage thing. Like, that stuck in my mind. But I had forgotten that there's this aspect to Kess's character, specifically where she ends up learning through this, this experience that relationships are way more than she thought they could be because mm-hmm. she had been so limited in her exposure to the different possibilities. And then learning about what the different possibilities are, like what a relationship can look like. It's like, why would you, especially if, if you didn't realize that what you had could be so much better. Like once you have that information, like what do you do with it? You go back and be like, wait, no, like this isn't, this actually isn't what I want. I would reframe what Neelix does. Like it's not, I don't think it's particularly grooming or manipulative. They do have an enmeshed relationship where kind of like the boundaries between people are a little blurred. And like, it's like, we're going to do everything together. Anything you do, I want to do. And anything I do, you want to do. And like that, that is like a little unhealthy. But I also wonder, like, I don't think Neelix knew any other way. You know, Mm. he probably like that's what he thought relationships were like. A lot of people think that's what relationships are like until they experience something that's different. Yeah, it's hard to say with Neelix. Do you remember he had his that kind of uh, Hiroshima analogy thing happened when he was a kid to his home planet where there was that... I vaguely remember that. Yeah, so he had, like, all his family were killed. The blast has set off hundreds of fires, and there's nothing there. Just smoldering ruins. The stench of seared flesh from out of this huge cloud of billowing dust. He can see... Bodies moving. They're monsters. Their flesh horribly charred. One of them comes toward him, and he can't help it. He he turns away, frightened. But then the thing speaks, and he knows by the sound of her voice that she's not a monster at all, but a child. And then he became this scavenger person, uh, and then we meet him um, in the pilot, and it's unclear. He he, he was up to no good. It, I, I, yeah, it doesn't seem like he certainly had like any long term relationships uh, before he met Kess either. Probably well, not. Also, if he experienced that kind of trauma, like he f- doesn't feel secure that the people he loves are going to stay close to him, so he tries mm. to hold them as close as possible out of fear of loss. Mm. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, like that possessiveness comes from insecurity a need to control comes from a fear of abandonment yeah there we go thank you thank you therapist (laughs) i'm learning Um, that happened fast i was like wait no like this is how i see that (laughs) let's talk about tyran um and a, a couple different things uh come up here and it's 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 pretty fascinating just how fluid he slash they slash she is depending on what the moment requires um, where, you know, she's kind of having this meltdown and like throwing things on the floor. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to screw up the pronouns because it is not clear in the episode who is doing what at what point, And I think that's part of the point. Uh, Tyrion is throwing things on the floor and ripping paintings down or whatever. And then comes across this uh, vase with the flowers, yeah. which for a moment it's Kess who's like, Tomorrow we'll send out an edict. Every citizen must have a garden. A garden? 
I love plants, flowers, anything that grows. Some of the times I felt most content were those spent watching the seedlings grow and the aeroponics. I'll, I'll recontextualize this moment of weakness um, and give the flower to my wife and say, see, we're still okay. Oh, by the way, we're going to bring this other guy into our relationship um, for political reasons. Don't be upset. It's only a political alliance. Amaron will help bring the support of Demis' troops. And there's almost this sense of like, I know you're not queer, wife. So, and I know I'm in a woman's body now, so I'm going to bring in a penis for you. <laughs> it's, it's really, there's a lot going on. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot going on. Like there's, there's the benefit for Tyrion at the expense of everyone else. There's this supposed, like, I do love you, wife, but we're going to bring a third person into this marriage and you better be okay with it. Uh, Nori, don't make me doubt your loyalty. Narcissistic <laughs> fuck. Um, I don't love the portrayal of non-monogamy in this, in this particular instance, just because it's so coercive and mm. not consensual for the people involved. And, like, honestly, watching that scene where Tyrion slash Kess you know, brings together, like, uh, Tyrion's wife and the brother of the Autark. ruler. Yeah. Autark, thank you. And the brother of the Artok. I want us all to be very, very close. I felt cringy watching that scene. I think appropriately so, but yeah. for me, the implications of non-monogamy for that means that, oh, this is always cringy. There's like no mm. way to do this where someone's not doing something they actually don't want to do. And sometimes that happens. I'm not saying that, you know, monogamy or non-monogamy is always ethical or, and sunshines and roses. Like there's coercion that happens in all kinds of relationships. But, but in this particular instance, it just, it was a very dark underbelly that yeah. made me cringe. And if you only see non-monogamy portrayed negatively you know then that's you're not getting the full story definitely and there's there's this subtext to it where because Tyrion and the autarch's brother and they're all you know royalty basically right they're all the, the ruling class of this society like in our own societies uh those people privileged people ruling class are afforded the uh, opportunity for polyamory or having lovers on the side or whatever yeah. whatever the social conventions say to the regular people you can't do this they can do it and it's just another sort of piece of that inequality that needs to be done away with obviously and i'm glad that there are healthier approaches now at least growing in society where we sort of understand that no this isn't just like some sort of decadent outgrowth of, <laughs> of um, monarchy. It's uh, just a thing that human beings who aren't limited by unhealthy social structures can explore. I think you bring up a really good point about how there are different rules for different people, you know, especially like the political alliances that dictated who married who for so many of like the, the monarchs and ruling classes of like Western society for so long, you know, they didn't love each other. You know, it was kind of like, yeah, yeah like, this is a business arrangement and I'm going to do what I want on the side. And like somehow everyone understood that until the past couple centuries where suddenly that wasn't okay anymore. 
um, or it wasn't like acceptable to talk about or acknowledge. It's 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 the double edged sword, which feels like it's becoming a theme for these episodes um, in this topic, which is that on the one hand, after the Victorian era, basically in the West, we um, recontextualize what marriage meant where it, you, yeah. it used to be pretty much understood that it was a a, 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 a transaction <laughs> and it was about the transference of property and wealth and inheritance. And if you happen to not hate <laughs> the person you were married to, then you were just lucky. <laughs> you know, it's like <sighs> that marriage isn't That's about love. That's the best love. you could do? <laughs> <laughs> you don't yeah. hate your spouse? Wow, you lucked out, man. Yeah, so on the one hand, we're happy, I think, that as a society, we've taken the idea that, that that romantic idea, that romantic overlay on marriage and said, no, it's not about property anymore, it's about love. And so all brides are going to wear white dresses like Queen Victoria did when she got married. And it's like this whole, um, we're, we're, we're taking out the bad and leaving the good. That's We, we like that. We're not con, um, condemning that change in society. But with that comes this sort of we forget <laughs> that yeah. no this is this this institution has all this baggage that we should be aware of, and we kind of need to do the same thing with other forms of uh, romance and relationships where we need to pick pick it apart and and look at what really works and what is a product of bad social practices. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a really good book I want to recommend called Sex at Dawn that actually takes an anthropomorphical lens at like relationships and sexuality through, through history and through different cultures. And, and like you're saying, like our ideas about marriage and monogamy and non-monogamy and relationships are very culturally bound and bound by time and certain practices. And, and our ideas about re- what relationships quote unquote should be you know, and we think like, well, this is, you know, God's law, you know, like big, big air quotes around that. Um, or like what's natural is actually like very, very recent in human history. Like we're actually the weird ones. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and that's just what I say. Read the book. It's great. Well, my understanding of enforced monogamy historically is it's usually about control. It's usually about making sure that people are sort of constrained within narrow social possibilities so that a particular social order is maintained, usually to the benefit of a small class of people who are reaping the benefits of of that control. So Mm -hmm. it makes sense that whether it's a religious context or just like a quote unquote natural like social Darwinism that's, that's what that is, mm. that this whole idea that, no, this comes from our biological nature and all that. When did corruption become so commonplace? My people are crying out for moral leadership. It's really just a means of, yeah, exerting control over people. It's a helpless feeling, isn't it? You will not break my control. Not break you, free you from all that repression. All you have to do is let go. I can help you release your own strength and give you what you've always secretly desired. I have never desired a kiss. In all those hours you spent alone together, all those intimate moments touching each other's minds, you've never even wondered what it might be like. To me, that ties into sort of what I was talking about with 
her realizing that there are different possibilities in the end through this experience is that for Tyrion, and and to your point, this is you know a negative portrayal of this kind of thinking where he's using his ability to be fluid and polyamorous and and everything else uh, to manipulate people and to get what he wants and to amass power, and that's obviously a negative depiction. But you know, we see the possibility that like for Kesh, you know, if she had her own ethics in play and had this kind of intimacy with Tuvok and with Neelix and with Tom Paris and whatever, like she, she might have this whole other realization of like, oh, I can have different kinds of relationships with different people. I am not just stuck. Yeah, I, I like that potential fan fiction headcanon, you know, about learning <laughs> that like, oh, I can have... I can have different types of relationships with different people. Like not all my relationships need to look the same. Like they can be fluid and adaptive and like catered to the person I'm in the relationship with. It's not this like cookie cutter. Every relationship looks like this. I have to act a certain way. If I'm in a relationship, we have to behave a certain way. If we're in like a romantic relationship, like suddenly realizing that that's not the way you have to do things, I think is, is liberating for a cast. And, and she gets there maybe through not as a fun way as you just described. Um, but she, she gets there and yeah, it's like, that's a lot for a two, three year old to learn. So good on her. <laughs> oh yeah. It reminded me, um, like what happens with her and Tyrion is a lot like what happens with the trills. Don't you think? There's some overlap there. The trill portrayal is usually more positive, which is good. There's something about gaining the experiences of another person that even if you would never, like, Kess would never make the same choices that Tyrion did and not live that kind of right. life at all. And I kind of like how she starts to, like, assert herself through Tyrion with the flowers and letting Voyager go, you know? And, like, Tyrion, like, Kess starts to seep through in a in a really cool yeah. way. And, and also, like, that actress is so good. You know, like, I completely, like, she really was another character. It was great. Yeah, Jennifer Lean stepped up. Yeah. Well, that's what Tuvok told her, too. Yeah, he, he says... Tap into his strengths and make them your own. And so at first she's repulsed by his goals, naturally. But she realizes by adapting his abilities, the way he adapted her powers, right? Her, Her telekinesis powers. She can achieve her own goals, but with way more strength. Final episode comes from Enterprise's second season, yes, the worst one, 2003's Stigma, written by showrunners Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, and, like Warlord, directed by David Livingston. Phlox is happy to be able to visit with his second wife, an engineer who is welcomed aboard to install a microscope. She works closely with Trip, of course, and makes it very clear that she's interested in boning. Insert the thick end into this opening. It'll automatically program the frequency. You can pull it out now. You're a very confident young man, aren't you? I try to be. You're going to need to come a little closer to see this. Denobulans, you see, are culturally polyamorous. Each takes up to three spouses. Tripp is concerned about Feasels, the wife's flirtations, and how they would upset Phlox. Phlox, of course, is only too happy for Tripp. Don't you find her attractive? 
Uh, sure. I, I mean, no, she's your wife. What does that have to do with it? You're too concerned with human morality. I don't think I'm ever going to change my mind about that. As you wish. Your laws. Trip can't quite wrap his head around this and excuses himself from the whole affair. Meanwhile, T'Pol is deteriorating from her case of space HIV. Yes, that's really what it's supposed to be from her encounter with Tolaris back in Fusion. Phlox makes efforts to covertly question some Vulcan doctors about the syndrome without revealing T'Pol's condition, but the Vulcans don't make it easy given the fact that the condition only arises in Vulcans who engage in mind melds, a practice which at this time is considered deviant and unnatural. In fact, the Vulcans see right through Phlox's ploy as they confront him and T'Pol about their motives. Since Panar's syndrome is transmitted by these people, its cure is not a priority. Are you saying there is no additional research? None that we'd care to disseminate. I'm sorry. You traveled up from the surface to tell Dr. Phlox you wouldn't help him? They also covertly scan T'Pol to confirm her status as Panar positive. They report their findings and subterfuge to Archer, and so they explain how her status puts her at risk of losing her job from the stigma, along with her life from the illness. One of the Vulcan doctors reveals to DePaul in secret that he is a melder, and shares the research that might help her. He discloses that the fact that her condition is the result of a telepathic rape might make her more sympathetic to the High Command. I won't do that. Why the hell not? I have Pinar Syndrome. Does it make a difference how I contracted it? It makes a lot of difference. You're not a member of this minority. If I use that as a defense, as a way to keep from being taken off Enterprise, I'd be condoning their prejudice, and in the process, indicting every member of the minority. I won't do that. Thankfully, Hoshi discovers a legal loophole which provides Archer the option of conducting a hearing for T'Pol's extradition. At the hearing, the young doctor who is a melder steps in to admit his status and explain that T'Pol engaged in a mind meld against her wishes. This saves T'Pol's career, but condemns the doctor to being an outcast. So I, I feel like I still need to have the disclaimer whenever we talk about Enterprise <laughs> that I have not seen this show. So I've only really watched the episodes that we've talked about on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And, and... I didn't hate this episode, despite the fact that it comes from what you say is the worst season. And I was shocked at, like, what a clear, like, HIV-AIDS allegory it was. Mm. And, like, it just, it surprised me. I don't know why. But I, I also really appreciate the somewhat progressive stance that, like, DePaul takes. You know, she's like, no, like, it shouldn't matter how I got this. And I'm playing into their prejudice if yeah. I use this as an excuse, like I actually really, really liked that they landed there. I don't like that the other perspective of that one at the end of the episode. I think that's a like lack of imagination. But but for the '90s, I was actually like pretty impressed with this. <laughs> what? Um, Why are you laughing? Yes, no, you are right. For the '90s, this uh, is pretty progressive. Uh, this episode aired in 2003. But it feels like such a '90s show. Yes, it does, in more ways than more ways than one. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, two years after 9/11, well, that's when this aired. Let's rewind for a second. So this episode was written by, like I said, uh, Brandon Braga and Rick Berman. Rick Berman, our favorite person, uh, back in 1989, I believe, maybe '88. Um, no, early, yeah, '87, '88. Uh, he was assistant executive producer, I believe, on TNG. And one of the writers, a gay man uh, named Jer David Gerald, had proposed a script in the 80s 
when this would have been really way more relevant as an allegory uh, to do an allegory episode about HIV on TNG. And Rick Berman was like, I'll do it, but no gay people. <laughs> Which David Gerald fought him about and eventually quit over this. And as we have talked wow. about, TNG never explicitly had any queer characters. And Enterprise, decades later, also still no queer characters. Even in this episode where they finally did their AIDS HIV allegory, they're still just, you know, it's all analogy. And... No gay people in sight. Even the polyamorous people are very straight. Anyway. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that's really interesting. And I kind of hate the fact that he stole the idea from the other writer and then like used it in his own way. Not yeah. cool, Rick Berman. Um, but I also, I personally appreciate the fact that like it's centered around mind melding, which in the rest of the Star Trek universe is totally a thing. Like, of yeah. course Vulcans mind meld. Everyone does that. So we're, we've kind of, like, backtracked in time to when that wasn't okay. And, like, to the audience, they're like, what are you talking about? Mind melding's fine. Yeah. You know? Uh, and I do... So I do appreciate the fact that they're almost hinting at the absurdity of the problem. Right. If, you, if, you, if you're familiar with Star Trek, which presumably you are if you're watching a prequel series, then you know that, like, it, 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 like, like with other things that we've looked at, like in TNG, when you have, like, gender episodes that are flipped, like Angel 1, where it's like, oh, the women are in charge and being misandrist against the men. Vamputer sentences them to death! <laughs> By Snoo Snoo! Yeah! yeah! <laughs> what are you, gay? Isn't it obvious how stupid misogyny is? Like, exactly. Like, you, you flip the script and then you realize, like, oh, being against this, having this attitude only makes you look stupid. And I agree. It's a little on the face but or on the nose, but that's okay. So for me, as a gay man, knowing that and seeing this very clear allegory, not only of what the Pinar syndrome is allegorizing HIV, but then the Melders allegorize uh, gay men primarily, right? That's the stigmatized group whose behavior leads to the transmission of this disease. Um, given that and our topic for today, uh, there is something that occurs to me here is in that. So it, it right now it's 2023. I'm married and married, gay marriage in the United States has been legal for eight years or so. And... Um, one of the things that has happened is that so prior to the legalization of, of equal marriage, uh, gay people, especially gay men, you know, our relationships tended to be a lot more fluid in their way they expressed because you didn't have the option of your white picket fence, nuclear family, recognized rights <laughs> uh, version of, uh, of, of, of family. And what has happened since is that so now we can be essentially equal uh, in terms of like we can have a single partner and kids if we want and have that kind of recognized monogamous status. But conversely, straight people are looking at what gay men quote unquote used to do and definitely still do. Um, but look, looking at the fact that, oh, well, this kind of looked fun or this looked really fulfilling or I, I want to try this. I don't want to be stuck just because um, you are now unstuck, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I, th there's a 
kind of beautiful irony there that I that I like. It reminds me a lot about like the Will and Thomas Riker conundrum of like, I want what you have. I think that would solve all my problems. It yeah. doesn't solve all your problems. It's just <laughs> different. It's just different. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I don't love the choice, again, Enterprise is so often unfortunate this way, of pairing <clears throat> their, um, their explicitly mon- non-monogamous episode with, uh, with Phlox and his wife um, with the AIDS allegory. There's kind of an yeah. unfortunate implication there. I wonder how conscious that was. Like, I really do. I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they didn't even realize the connection until well, well after the fact. Yeah, if at all. Um, but that's that's enterprise. It's okay. Um, speaking of which, let's talk about uh, the the Nobulans and their yeah. polyamory. I thought it was really cute to see um, Flox and his wife get together. Uh, do we meet his other wife or his first wife earlier in the series? Is no. this the first or only time we see a spouse of his? To my recollection, this is the only time. I think there's correspondence but and mention, okay. but this is the only time we actually meet one of his spouses. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I don't love how still monogamous that is, but stepping that aside, um, I I really appreciated just how very okay Flox was. You know, like Trip was terrified to tell Flox what was going on, and Flox was like, "Oh, like that's great. Do you want to do anything?" Like very much <laughs> like, "I'm not jealous. This is great. You should totally go for it." Like, why do you think I would be upset? It's like such a foreign concept to him. And so I, I do like this kind of like that culture clash. Um, and also like the very last scene when Trip leaves and Flox and his wife are just there and they're just like... Humans. <laughs> you know, I think people get the sense of like, you're supposed to be jealous or you're supposed to be angry if you find out that someone that you're in a romantic partnership with is interested in having a romantic partnership with something else. Like somehow that's a threat to you or like that you threaten to yeah. lose something like by that. And he's just like, oh yeah, have fun. Like she's great. Right. You know? And and going along with that, the fact that it doesn't occur to Trip to talk to her and be like, hey, yeah. he talks to her husband because going along with that attitude that he has, there's this assumption of like possessiveness, right? And of ownership. Yeah. Where, oh, I need to talk to your husband about this because you belong to him. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that's the, the undertow of that is, is not great, you know? And, and like, you can see that in a, even today, you know, like if a woman is getting hit on by a guy at a bar and she's uncomfortable, she'll say like, I have a boyfriend. Right. As not- if <laughs> I already belong to somebody else back off. Right. The fact know? that I'm asking you not to do this wouldn't stop you. Only the fact that there's another guy who, I don't yeah. know, will fight you or already. It goes back to what we were talking yeah. about before about this, like the, the history of romantic partnerships is so tied up in like the concept of property and uh, yeah. inheritance and social class and all of that. It's, it's a lot of decoupling we have to do. But another aspect I find slightly problematic is Fiesel's just the way she makes her advances toward trip. Like, he's clearly uncomfortable and she's not doing anything. Like, she's kind of like, how far can I push this before you you stop me? And like, that definitely has a creepy vibe to it. Like, if a guy did that to me, I would be like, what? Back, back the fuck up. You know? Right. Like, you can tell I'm not into this. and she, But she keeps pushing it. And and I don't particularly like that. And and I think similarly to the, to the 
Voyager episode where I'll be like, oh, look, this is portrayed in a negative way. Like, yeah. you should feel uncomfortable if someone does this to you is kind of like the uh, like the underlying message there. And also, like, someone who is open in multiple relationships, like, is not really paying attention to what the other partner wants, you know, or what the other person wants. And I don't love that. You know, I think, like, the non-monogamous people I know would be like, hey, I'm interested in you. I think you're great. You know, is this something that you would be open to? You know, again, like, having a very direct conversation with the other person involved. Yes. You know, (laughs) um, versus just, like, flirting you know, even though the person's clearly uncomfortable and you just kind of push it until they try to like, until they finally say something and you see how far you can go. Like that I don't love. Yeah, well, we you've even in the few episodes of Enterprise you've seen, you've, you have seen <laughs> that this history, ha- this show has an unfortunate history with playing off lack of consent, uh, yeah. especially around trip, it seems, uh, for laughs. Um, so that's not great. There's a pregnancy involved. I thought we'd send you were there to fix their warp reactor, not to impregnate one of their females. I'm afraid that's not going to be so easy. <laughs> but um, I will be a little bit generous, which is usually your role. So we're we're doing the role for reversal for this episode. That's the theme, um, and say that as written, not so much the way it's directed and played, but as written. I think we're supposed to understand that Trip is interested in her, but the thing that is making him uncomfortable is the fact that he has this cultural expectation around monogamy. And he has this, what's making him uncomfortable isn't her or his advances. Like, I think we're supposed to intuit that um, he would definitely want to pursue this with her, if not for the fact that she's already married. Um, Which it still doesn't, excuse the portrayal the portrayal still clearly says like he's he's basically saying no and he's she's pushing that's not okay but if we read between the lines a little bit it's it's almost as if she she knows it's 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 funky it's a little gross but it's we're supposed to understand i believe that it's his problem with his human-centric lack of um broader thinking and not so much that he's actually put off by the advance I like the generosity of it. I, I still just can't quite get past the way about how she she was those advances from her were portrayed. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I, and, and yeah, I think it is a cultural issue more than anything else. And she should have been more respectful. The, the thing that I think I like the most about the portrayal is, as you mentioned, the relationship between Phlox and Fiesel and the way that they are so casual and open and direct. You know, they're talking about other people's other spouses. And she's, you know, leaving aside the fact that he's maybe not into it, Tripp's not very into it, she's flirting with Tripp right in front of her husband. And he's, it's almost as if there's like this sort of subtextual communication between them as spouses. Like, she's doing it to be like, hey, I'm doing this. This is okay, right? And he's like, yep, this is okay. Like there's this sense of like they trust each other and they're on yeah. the same page. And it's it's one of the things that comes up a lot when you talk to people who are maybe uncomfortable with the concept of not of non-monogamy is that they don't see the difference between non-monogamy and cheating, right? Yeah. And the difference is all about intent. 
as far as I understand it. It's like cheating is literally, it's a lie, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're, as, as we said, you don't escape <laughs> the ethical sort of contexts of your actions just because you choose a different love style. You are still mm-hmm. obligated to be honest and direct and um, have, to have there be consequences to your actions. Yeah, my, my understanding of of polyamory slash ethical non-monogamy because they're not they they're not quite the same thing they like overlap a lot but like there's a lot of different ways to be ethically non-monogamous polyamory is one of them there's like swinging there's like there's a there's a bunch of different ways to do it but but the way i understand it is it's it's kind of built on consent like everyone knows it's happening and everyone has agreed like this is this is something we do and like they they discuss the rules and the arrangements, you know, and like you can kind of make that relationship structure work however you want. You talk about it with your partner, your partners, like, is this hierarchical? Are we solo poly? You know, um, what are our rules around safe sex? What are our rules around scheduling? Like, it's like, to me, it's all very much like you set the structure in place based on what the other, based on what is comfortable and okay with everyone that's involved, you know? And so to me, that I think is one of the defining features of it is the fact that like, it's not hidden. No one's lying about it. Everything is like, no, this is happening. And I want, I don't want to coerce your consent to this, but like, we're all agreeing that this is okay. And we're going to put these like kind of rules and structures and safeguards in place um, that are respectful of everyone that's involved so that we're all okay within like within this framework and within these boundaries of like what is okay within this arrangement and what isn't okay. And mm-hmm. it is possible to cheat in a non-monogamous relationship. You know, like you can, if you agree that, oh, hey, I'm always going to, tell you before I start dating someone new and you don't that's cheating what what are the rules you know that like the people involved have put in place and it doesn't need to be the same rules as as another relationship you can really tailor it to like what what works for you but and that also forces the conversation of what what does work for you what are you okay and not okay with like you know and and like it, it takes a lot of conversation but you know and like a lot of communication. And that's one of the good things about the way the Denobulans are portrayed here. I mean, I don't I don't love that it's one size fits all. That's a little tricky, but you know, it's Star Trek. That's usually how it is with aliens. Uh, but they have the point being they have like a specific sort of protocol for their non-monogamy, which is three spouses apiece. That's sort of their thing. Um mm which you could allegorize as saying that for an individual couple um, or, or polycule or whatever, there are, there are boundaries in place. It isn't just a free-for-all. Not that there's anything wrong with the free-for-all either, but uh, the point being like most people require some sort of structure in their lives and their romantic lives and adopting some form of non-monogamy is not an abandonment of structure um, outright. Yeah. You just have to be consensual, as you say, clear, honest, and direct about what those rules are. And because those things can't be assumed the way they tend to be in heteronormative monogamous structures, it forces you to be really 
cognizant of what those rules are and what they mean because you're you're developing them and you're building them um so you really have to think about the implications So coming up with episodes for this uh, episode of our show, Elizabeth, was a little tricky um, because we don't have, other than the Denobulans, kind of, there aren't very many, even in the new series, uh, depictions of non-monogamous relationships, um, ethical or otherwise. And so I had to kind of be a little creative uh, in which which things sort of spoke yeah. to that message, if you, if you know what I mean. I was actually watching the Voyager episode being like, why is this on this? Like, why is this on deck for this episode? And then we got to that scene later on. I'm like, oh, that's why. Okay. Yeah. Um, there are moments. But to me, what that speaks to uh, is in the writer's rooms, there is definitely this curiosity and this interest in the topic and a, and a desire to explore it. But there are just a lot of limitations imposed by culture or perhaps imposed by network executives. We don't know. Um, that limit uh, how that the topic can be discussed and portrayed. So we kind of have to read in between the lines like we've had to um, with queer allegories as well. And a lot of things like that, we kind of have to say, what are you really getting at here? What that speaks to, I think, is kind of what I mentioned uh, with our Enterprise segment about as a gay man experiencing heterosexual people um, expressing to me their desire to explore non-monogamy as they have observed uh, gay people in their lives doing it um, from their cultural history. And what's the, the positive side of that is that you have more uh, broader and um, more diverse expressions of romantic and sexual love in the whole spectrum of, of people and their identities, which is great. The negative portion of it is that you often get this kind of exoticized, fetishized view of non-monogamy. Um, it's typical huh. in media to see like the one bisexual character, a pansexual person or gay person is like the big manipulative slut, <laughs> like Tyrion, right? Right, totally, yeah. As opposed to just like another version of healthy love. Yeah, the word fetishization is really interesting to me because when you say, said that, I just thought about like how you will hyper fixate on one particular aspect of whatever it is you're attracted to someone's race, their feet, <laughs> a million other things that you can be fetish, like that can be a fetish for you. Um, whatever rocks your boat. Do you do you? Um, you had to mention feet with the episode where there's like a whole scene dedicated to Neelix's feet. <laughs> I'm not appreciative of that. <laughs> oh, you're not. No, you? You're not. Okay. Sorry, go on. Feet. <laughs> Whatever you're fetishizing becomes an object and yeah. not a whole person. And so it becomes kind of this, like, it becomes a little one-dimensional. It becomes caric It becomes a caricature. Um, it's not a real fleshed-out person like you and me, you know. And in some situations, that's okay. You know, behind closed doors, with consent, fetishize whoever whatever you want you know just don't hurt anybody unless they're okay with that um 
But yeah, like I, I think when you're fetishizing a different way of life that seems strange to you, as appealing as it is, you can kind of add these like, well, there's a reason it's alluring and kind of makes me uncomfortable. How can I make this person be uncomfortable, but also alluring? And like, there's this mm-hmm. like scary enticement that I think can happen. And I see that happening like in all three of these episodes where none of them, none of them are like a fully positive representation of non-monogamy. Um, like there, there's kind of problematic aspects to all of it. Yes. So like all, all these different examples and how much of that is is the fetishization of what they what the writers think non-monogamy is mm-hmm. how much of it is a lack of imagination like culturally and like and to be honest like i think the concept of non-monogamy is has been around for a while but is only very recently been able to be talked about in a more open way as opposed to like hush hush no like you don't you don't talk about that um you know, it, it actually, like, it came up in um, my school program, like, last time I was there in my marriage and family systems class. Like, we were talking about what makes a family. And the last question was, how does non-monogamy, polyamory, etc., change your answer? Does it? Why mm. should it? I'm trying to be generous to the writers of Star Trek because of when they were writing. Mm. Like, there wasn't as much... It wasn't in the zeitgeist, I think, as much as it is now. And even now, it's still a subject and a topic that a lot of people struggle to understand. Yeah. And like I mentioned, I'm not, I can't think of an example, an explicit example in the current series of healthy or even even unhealthy. The closest thing, I guess, you know, the closest thing we have are just people who are casually dating maybe more than one person like, um, like Pike has kind of some, yeah. you know. Uh, you know? I think I missed the beard. Yeah, I felt like I belonged to a different era of captain. But that's what you were going for, man at a time. That's the closest thing I could think of, but pretty much it's closed monogamous relationships. Um, and what I will say also, trying to stay generous, is that in the episodes, at least that we looked at today, there's also, we're seeing the pitfalls of, it's not as though the episodes are saying, not monogamy is bad, for these reasons, but monogamy is great. You know, like in, in the TNG episode, as we said, Troy's contemplating this more traditional monogamous um, relationship with Tom, but it's seen as like, yeah, th- that comes with its own pain <laughs> um, of a different type, uh. maybe sometimes, but it's not as though you escape that just by going down this route. It's not viewed as better. In fact, it's viewed for Troy. She chooses not to do that, not to get whatever security yeah. or, uh, joy she she might get out of that. She decides that it's not worth trading what she has. It took me a long time to get over what happened between Commander Riker and me. I don't know that I want to put myself in that position again. I've worked hard to make a life for myself on the Enterprise. I'm happy here. And, you know, and then she makes that choice later in her life. Maybe that was the, you know, when, when she and Will do end up together in Picard. But that wasn't the choice that was right for her at the time. Yeah. And and so I think about that too. You know, like there's this there's a sense of autonomy in the non-monogamous 
relationships that I think should also exist within the monogamous relationships. Mm -hmm. Again, the fact that it doesn't always, I think is a lack of imagination and a lack of possibility. But, but I think that's really important. Like she's not just choosing, like Deanna's choosing herself in, in that decision, which I think is really important. Yes, I agree. And because of the way the episode is laid out, the implication is that it's a more mature Troy making that choice, that it is a wiser decision um, than the one she would have made eight years ago when she was a little younger and more naive. Um, But we we, we see something similar with Kessa Neelix where, again, the very traditional, in most ways, relationship between her, between the two of them, between Kessa Neelix, is viewed as pretty toxic. And through Tyrion, despite his assholishness, um, it's called out directly and like, hey, you don't let me be a person without you. (laughs) Without you involved in every aspect of my life. And I didn't realize that that was so bad for me until it was presented as an option not to be that way. That's what I like about you, Cass. You make me consider alternatives. I could say the same about you. My people are peripatetic by nature. We live for the excitement of facing the challenge of space alone. I can see the attraction. And I can see the value of fellowship in one's life. And now that I've observed the closeness that exists among your crewmates, I find it enviable. Some kind of compromise might be possible. Compromise? Doesn't that suggest a loss on both sides? And then, of course, we see the Denobulans kind of amused at Tripp's lack of imagination which is ironic given the writer's lack of imagination, but at least it's there of this like, oh, they'll grow up eventually. <laughs> they'll figure yeah. this out. As his doctor, I hope you'll keep Commander Tucker in perfect running order. Perhaps that'll motivate me to visit more often. Mm-mm. It's a shame you two didn't get to uh, know each other better. Hmm. Well, I've got to get back to my warp engine. The plasma's running a little hot. I know how it feels. Mm-hmm. I think we've established that you and I approve of ethical non-monogamy as a practice, but we wouldn't want to leave the impression that it um, solves the problems that monogamous relationships suffer. It it doesn't. Um, Those problems usually aren't about the relationship itself. They're about other things, control issues, insecurities, jealousy, Communication. communication. And if anything polyamorous non-monogamous or non-monogamous relationships um require that those skills that one needs in a to to have a healthy monogamous relationship are even more finely honed and more self-consciously practiced like it's hard enough you might say um to communicate with one partner uh to the to the extent that you need to to keep things moving along the way they should if you have multiple partners you need to be even better at it um, again, that's not an encouragement or discouragement from the lifestyle. It's just a reality that you don't, you don't escape. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like, oh, if I could just be with somebody else, that would fix my other relationship. No. I was talking with a friend about non-monogamy recently, and she said, yeah, I, I can't do it because I don't want to talk about my feelings so much. <laughs> Which I thought was really funny and like took a lot of self-awareness. But she's like, yeah, no, you have to talk about things and I don't want to talk about them. And I'm like, <laughs> fair, very fair. Right. Um, As a therapist, I'm sure that was great. Like, yes, 
We don't talk about feelings. <laughs> no, she actually said that too. She's like, well, like, that's your job. And I'm like, you talk about feelings all the time. I'm like, uh, uh, I'm like, I don't know what's happening right now. Um, but, uh, but also a good kind of metaphor that I heard once was, was like comparing like monogamy is like driving a car and non-monogamy is like riding a motorcycle. You, they both can get you to where you want to go. There's different dangers to both. There's different ways to drive. Like, you, you just need to know how to use the vehicle. So I want to reiterate, um, we are not being prescriptive. Uh, in this episode, but you know, hu- human beings in the Star Trek future are supposed to be aspirational and represent better possibilities of what the human condition can look like. And despite the limitations that we've seen in the writers' room, there is at least the implication that humans have moved beyond the limitations of including other things, monogamy. And if it is something that y- is curious to anybody and they want to move past the fetishizing curious uh, phase into the more informed um, consent phase, then uh, there are some books I think you can recommend Elizabeth on the topic. Yeah. Um, my, my personal favorite is called uh, More Than Two, which I think gets into a lot of the like deconditioning of monogamous culture and kind of like really figuring out what your own like emotional emotional values are um the ethical slut is like (laughs) one of the classics as well which is uh really fun to recommend um opening up talks a lot about the different structures that are possible um and like frameworks for like navigating and like setting up different kinds of relationships and then if you're interested in attachment theory, um, Polysecure is another really good book that kind of talks about the different attachments, um, like how your own attachment would affect your relationships and like how to kind of navigate the issues that would come up in that way. That's excellent. It's, 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 uh, it's a great list. Um, thank you, as always, for your wonderful insights. Thank you for talking about these episodes with me. This was uh, this is a fun week. Um, yeah. We are finally going to talk about everyone's favorite episode next week. We're going to talk about Tuvix. Oh, here we go. We've been talking about, like, when are we going to do this episode? And now we're here. <laughs> yeah. uh, and not alone. We're going to talk about Tuvix. Oh, God, I can already see the comment section. It's fine. We're going to talk about Tuvix um, and a couple other episodes as abortion allegories. So, Yeah. Looking forward to uh, to the flame wars on that one. Anyway, uh, I do look forward to talking with you about that. Thank you again. Thank you to our listeners and patrons. Please like, subscribe. All that's good stuff. We appreciate expanding the community. And uh, with that, Elizabeth, I will see you next week. See you next week. Take care. In addition to the monogamous versus non-monogamous arrangement. Fuckity fuck, what is going on with me today? Good morning.